I'm Dr. Jill Wiener. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice, to provide a nuanced, honest, and educational examination of systemic racism. I am so excited to have Martin Shepard here. He is the founder and CEO of Arc Access Control, which is a uh, provides physical and cybersecurity solutions, and they do much more technical things than that that I don't understand. So we may we may go into some of that. He's also the co-founder of Earn, which is the Executive Action Response Network uh, that is a anti-racism uh, activist group that uh, company that I will that we'll get into. Uh, he's also a lawyer by training and is um, obviously now more in the corporate space. Martin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Why, thank you, uh, Jill. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for having me on. Awesome, awesome. Well, it is, it is my pleasure. Um, so let's start a little bit with your personal journey um, professionally, but since this is an anti-racism uh, discussion, uh, if, if you're open to sharing some of your experiences with race and racism and how that may have formed what you do now professionally um, with ARC Access, you know, in the, in the non-anti-racism space, but also with ARN. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I am a, a Black American born in the 1970s, uh, raised by parents who came through the civil rights movement in America, right? So uh, race is in there in the foundations uh, uh, and, and dealing with racism in this country uh, and uh, standing for your, yourself as a black human being, uh, whether it's in uh, regular social public life and, and uh, public accommodation or in your professional life and an executive journey. Um, unfortunately, uh, you know, 60 years 70 years after, after Dr. King got his start and, uh, and made such an impression on the world, uh, we are still, and I, I think King and, and Malcolm worried about this and spoke about it, we're, we're still dealing with uh, the vestiges of slavery, the transatlantic slave trade, Jim Crow. Uh, those things are still here uh, and uh, you, you cannot live in this country uh, as a black person and, and not be touched by it. Now, so the question becomes, what do you do, right? And so uh, to get back to your question, um, very early on in, in life, I, I found refuge in, uh, in hip hop music and uh, some of my, my favorite early groups, uh, Boogie Down Production and KRS-One and, uh, and Public Enemy and X-Clan, uh, they were speaking about these crazy, you know, perspectives on uh, how America treated us and, and how America uh, maybe sh should treat us and, uh, and giving, I think, young people like myself uh, a background, uh, if not a complete background, uh, giving us the intellectual curiosity to go and, and, and figure out uh, this past and, and what we should do uh, moving forward. Uh, and so uh, as, a, as a college student, um, I was a, a student activist, uh, was arrested a couple times, uh, stirred up a little trouble, but also was able, it was good trouble, uh, mm -hmm. as John Lewis would say, 
uh, and also was able to be a part of a group of people who ushered in real change at the university that I attended. So, um, uh, and, and beyond that, the, the struggle is uh, truly a day-to-day. -day. I've always had uh, uh, mentors. I've always mentored younger folks uh, and always uh, really, really pressed um, on folks to be conscious and aware of, of, of helping other black folks in, in similar situations to, to be able to achieve the things that they're trying to achieve. Um, so activism and taking a stand has always been in there somewhere. It's always, that's great. What, what kind of stuff, where did you go to college and what kind of stuff did you? I went to a small Midwestern college. No, I went to Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Oh, Miami, Ohio. Okay, that's like yeah. a, I just said that so fast. I didn't like. I don't even know if I said the middle syllables. Miami of Ohio. Miami of Ohio. Yes. We we call it Miami University. Full stop. The University of Miami is a is a little school uh, in Miami, Florida, uh, that is not quite the caliber of Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. We say Miami University was a university before Florida was even a state. That's what we say. All right. I like that. We, I went to Northwestern and we used to call it the Harvard or the Midwest. So that gives you, we used to, <laughs> we had some things that we said about it, but. My, Miami, Miami is known, was known, I think still is known as one of 12 or 13 public ivies. So we, we. I love that. Own snobbish ways about us, uh, us Miami alums. So, yeah. I'm just thinking of, oh God, what we would chant at football games because we just were bad about our football skills, but anyway, well, <laughs> different. Northwestern is not known for its football, although a connection, Northwestern head coach Randy Walker, uh, rest in peace, may he rest in peace, was, uh, before he was at Northwestern, was the coach at Miami University. He, he coached while I was at Miami. Oh. Miami and went to, and went to Northwestern. Awesome. Wait, when did you graduate? We're so off topic, but. 1998. Okay, so you're a year older than me. We had Gary Barnett for a time when I was there, maybe yep, he was. I remember Gary Barnett. Um, okay, so obviously this is a football podcast, so we're gonna keep talking about football the whole time. Um, so, okay, so at Miami University, what did, what kind of uh, good trouble did you get into um, in, in activism? And what was that like? Because I think the term activist, activist is, is, it carries such this, this um, What's the opposite of stigma? It, it like it's this really it's I don't know it's this aspirational word and I remember when I for, when I went on the anti-racism retreat two years ago I was like oh god what if they make me what if they expect me to be an activist I don't know how, you know like I just that word to me sounds like this unattainable magic land of coolness and 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 bravery and and courage um, and I re I resist using that word for myself, because for me, it's this like image of people marching in the streets and getting arrested and, and doing like the real work. And I, um, so I'm, I'm fascinated by, by, by the work, by the word and by the work. So what, what kind of stuff did you do? Uh, I was marching in the streets and getting arrested. I mean, that's, uh, you, you hit the nail on the head. Mm -hmm. I think activism, I, I would tend to agree Although I think there are circles out there that that also uh, sort of stigmatize negatively stigmatize mm -hmm. uh, the word as well. Um, there is, you know, a very powerful. Uh, there are very powerful systems at play in our day to day lives, and uh, when you're a student at a at a big state run university, uh, 
you know, you, you can bump into some of that system and, and maybe you don't agree with how it works. And um, at the time, uh, there were, I think, two and a half percent uh, black students at Miami University, so something along those lines. Um, and so we felt like there, uh, there should be uh, a, a different effort to recruit students of color, specifically African-American students. Um, and we also felt like those of us who were there uh, should have been afforded uh, better accommodation uh, and uh, cultural sensitivity uh, on campus uh, and afforded more opportunities on campus. And, uh, you know, we, we distilled that into some action items, some demands, uh, and then uh, to be heard, sometimes you know you got to go the extra mile. If 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 they won't hear you, you got to make them hear you. And uh, we developed a couple different strategies to to get out and get noticed and uh, get the press involved. Got the national press involved and uh, uh, got arrested. Went to trial. Was acquitted. Um, but through all that, you know, you're you're putting uh, information in front of the public. And the public gets to see uh, what's going on at this this small little town. Miami is a great school, fantastic school. I have nothing but love for the, the years that I was there, administration. Um, but the system, and this is something, and maybe we'll get into this a little bit with the earn discussion. It's not the people always, right? Like it's it's um, it is inertia uh, built into the gears of the bigger machine and. The people sometimes are just stewards of the machine, you know, uh, cogs, if, 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 if even that. And uh, the machine has been used to running the way that it's running. And it, until you really throw a wrench in there, uh, it'll continue to grind away and grind away. Um, and so it, I think activism then is just the, um, the, the, the visionary ability to see that things are, are not quite the way that they are supposed to be. And then the ability to get um, a, uh, you know, to, to get a critical mass of people to, to see yeah. different and better. Yeah, I think that, that that's, I think getting that people to see like lead the, the change that, that affects it. That's the, that's what distinguishes, I think, and makes you an activist, makes one an activist. Um, I like that definition. Um, what does anti-racism mean to you? Anti-racism. Wow. Oh, that's, a, that's so much to unpack. It's, it's like a, a, a word with a prefix. And uh, I, you, you have to look historically uh, at the, the word, the sentiment around what racism means. What is racism? You know, race is... is in itself is a fallacy, it's a fiction. Uh, racism is, is a social construct uh, that has, only has value when you can fool people into believing the, the value that you're trying to project onto it. The anti-racism is telling the truth about uh, humanity and who we are as individuals, as people within a functioning civil society uh, within the systems that uphold that, that civil society, it's telling the truth uh, that race is a, is a fallacy, that they're, uh, however you've been indoctrinated about people who are different than you, uh, if that indoctrination includes something that is scary or negative or that it's, that it's wrong. I mean, it, in every instance, 
that it's wrong. Uh, and fundamentally, um, in America, in the United States of America, um, anti-racism is, um, is an effort to end white supremacist culture uh, in our institutions um, and organizations. I love that, telling the truth about humanity within the systems. It's the, it's the truth. I mean, yeah. um, we, we have, you know, you hate, you, I hate this language uh, because it, it doesn't feel authentic, but it, this is real and it's coming from me, a, a, a black man in America. I have friends who are white, right? You know, you hear it sometimes, <laughs> I have friends who are black. I have, I have dear friends. My oldest son's godfather is a, is a white man. Um, we know that, that we're not different in, in the way that people, in the way that people who may have voted a certain way in this last election think that they are different. We know that that's not true, right? How is it that that continues to persist? And then anti-racism is just like, how do you cut that off with the past and, and enlighten people in, in a way that moves us past uh, uh, those shortcomings as, as a nation? Yeah. I find myself getting, um, you know, there's different schools of thought. Do you change people's minds and then try to change the policy? Or Ibram Kendi says, change the policy first and then it changes people's minds. Like with Obamacare, it got passed and then people were like, oh, that's actually kind of cool that we have, you know, white people who, who were against it were then like, hey, that's pretty, that's pretty rad that I have free healthcare um, or affordable healthcare. Um, and I agree with like everything he says and I agree with that concept too, but I also feel like if we don't change the mindset, we end up creating policies that are sometimes well-intending, but often um, perpetuating racism, such as uh, like No Child Left Behind, which I'm not a policy expert on that. Um, um, segregation of schools, we, we look back on that. I, I, I've learned, you know, I always look back on that as like, yay, the day, not the day racism ended. I'm not, I wasn't that stupid, but I was pretty right. ignorant, but not that ignorant. But thinking that it was well-intended or, 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 or I think it, it wasn't even well-intended. It was d it designed to get black kids closer to white kids so they could be better, right. you know? So it wasn't even, even that. Um, and then it ended up taking away from my understanding, like black people's ability to have their own spaces, you know, like, like integration isn't actually the good thing that white people are taught that it is. And maybe black people are taught that too. So There's what do you talk about? There's a lot to unpack there, right? Yeah. There, that's, that has a, a whole, we need a separate podcast for all that, but I think you got to do both, right? I mean, yeah. it's, that's kind of the, the short answer. Um, I think the challenge, uh, if, if we're talking politics, since it sounds like we bet that corner, um, Joe Biden's principal challenge is going to be to, to conceive of what you give the American people that brings the American people together. Because I agree, um, if you change policy, if, if you paint everything 
with one color and it's beneficial for everyone who's been painted, then that's a good thing. And it has the potential to change, to help change people's minds. But, but those things alone can't change. Obamacare didn't change people's minds, right? Like, yeah. um, so you also have to, uh, you have to work on changing people's minds. The problem has been that that has not been an effort, a, a top-down effort, right? You know, at one point, it was legal to own chattel slaves, right? To, to own human beings. Um, and then at one point it wasn't, but it was okay uh, in places of public accommodation to, to send black people around back to the alley, right? Or, or what, what have you. And then that wasn't okay, but it was okay not to allow them into your union or, or not to hire them. And then that wasn't okay. But at no point in that time continuum did there, anyone ever say like, look, let's create some structure to this and let's disassemble disassemble race and racism and the structures of racism in this country that that never really happened mm -hmm. and i think to change people's minds there has to be that sort of enlightened leadership on the subject it's not just enough to have the, the great poets and griots uh in the african-american community uh talk about it in in their sermons and in their art um, it's, it's not just enough to have a couple of ambassadors here and there uh, who are willing to, uh, white folks who are, are willing to talk about it. Um, I think it has to be a, a conscious effort. Um, there have been other countries who, who, who have got, embarked on, uh, you think of truth and reconciliation in South, in South Africa after apartheid. Um, it's possible to do. Uh, this country has never re resolved to take that journey. Um, and I don't know I, I worry about that, right? You know, market-based capitalism is like, you know, let the invisible hand control. And, you know, that has, that seeps into all of American life. You know, it's in the church, it's, it's in uh, the corner store, it's everywhere, right? Uh, that sort of, uh, uh, that basis uh, for how you operate. And I, I worry that America uh, as a society is, is really just says like, this will take care of itself somehow um, because it, it won't. I mean, there has to be intentionality uh, behind re resolving s systems and structures, institutions uh, of racism. Yeah, yeah. And that also that pointing the finger, it's, it's, it's that other person's problem, that other institution's problem, or that's not, that's not what I do. That's not what I'm pr propagating or perpetuating. I think that's such a big issue, not, not taking ownership for it. Not taking ownership. And, and understand, this is, you know, I said it before, we very intentionally, and we haven't introduced Earn, uh, well, you introduced Earn, we, we haven't given it foundation here, um, but in putting together the concept uh, we, we very intentionally were talking to the institutions, not talking to the individuals. We know a lot of the individuals and we know that they are not bad people, that they're not necessarily racist people. Um, but we also understand that the way that this thing has been set up um, doesn't, doesn't work for us. And, and to raise the consciousness of the people who run these organizations, uh, you, you've got to start somewhere. Uh, and I think a good place to start is at how these organizations uh, have historically run, how they can continue to run in order uh, to kind of keep uh, uh, 
ambitious, is that, is that, the, is that the word I'm looking for? Ambitious uh, African-American folks uh, at bay uh, and keep them from opportunities. Hmm. How about like valuable? <laughs> like, I mean, I was looking at, cause ambitious. Worthwhile. Like, <laughs> worthwhile, there we go. People who are just capable and there, right? right? should be exposed to opportunities and ambitious is something different thank you for correcting that that is absolutely right so let's talk about earn so i've already interviewed george and jessica who are your your co-founders but talk a little bit about where where the like what made you come up with the name i know that like story you all did a a, a leadership program together for black professionals i, I believe or black executives um, just a little bit of the story of how it came to, together and, and what, your, what your mission is, because I obviously know it. And so we're talking about it sort of familiar in a sort of familiar way, but for people listening, what's so important about EARN and, 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 and this, I think the accountability step also, if you can talk about that. Yeah, so uh, EARN was, was born out of uh, uh, George Robinson, Jessica Woods and I, uh, all attended a, not attended, we all graduated from an executive leadership program at Carnegie Mellon uh, Tepper School of Business. Um, and uh, just in getting to know each other through that time, uh, I think spoken, unspoken, we, we knew we saw the world in a similar sort of a way and saw the problems of the world in a similar sort of, of a way. Um, and then lo and behold, 2020 uh, comes around and uh, the, the world starts crumbling uh, all at once uh, with, with COVID and uh, obviously uh, some of the, the social movements that happened in the, in the wake of, of George Floyd. Um, and the three of us were participating in these discussions and, and calls and, and uh, listening to you know, some of our colleagues and, and participating and, and trying to you know, put our perspective in, into the marketplace of, of ideas. And I can speak for me uh, specifically. I was uh, disappointed, uh, overwhelmingly disappointed uh, by the, the lack of urgency, um, the, the lack of uh, energy uh, and, and fire. Um, you know, I thought, uh, that what happened with George Floyd was, was so sinister uh, and evil. Um, and we, we don't all have the ability, I mentioned protesting in the streets, I was 19 or 20, right? You know, I'm a 44-year-old I'm man with, with a wife and, and children and responsibilities. Um, that's not to say that, you know, we can't still go and protest in the street, um, but there has to be support for that effort. Um, uh, those of us with executive skill and, and uh, legal skill and other skills and the ability to organize things outside of the, of the street, uh, we started to feel like we got to do something. It can't be the traditional model. It can't just be uh, uh, discussion around DNI. Uh, it's got to be something specifically for Black people in this country. Black people are suffering, dying at the highest rates uh, from, from COVID and the pandemic, um, dying in the streets at the hands of police officers and excessive force. Um, and then uh, we also took note of 
uh, a study that was done here in Pittsburgh uh, by the University of Pittsburgh, um, uh, a gender equity study. Uh, but the, the gender equity study revealed the conditions uh, for black Pittsburghers and that those conditions uh, resulted in, you know, the lowest quality of life uh, amongst, I think, the 25 metropolitan areas uh, that were surveyed, uh, making Pittsburgh the worst place uh, to live uh, as a Black American. Uh, and so the, those three things, uh, the gender equity study, uh, COVID and, and how COVID hit the Black community and then the response to George Floyd, uh, kind of spurred us uh, to get together. We all, we all went, uh, George Robinson hosted, uh, he actually didn't host it, there's another organization that hosted uh, the skeet shooting event, uh, but he invited us. We went, we went and shot clay ducks, which I'm really bad at, uh, but it was fun nonetheless. Um, and while we were out there, we just started saying, hey, you know, what are we gonna do? We gotta do something. And that was really the, the genesis and the birth of uh, the Executive Action Response Network. Um, since then, uh, I think you mentioned the accountability. Uh, we have, we're, we, we're still, I mean, this is, you know, we're four or five months into it now. We're, we're still uh, iterating and, uh, and sort of finalizing a business model. Um, but as you all know, uh, we have put s some of the, uh, the uh, uh, solution set uh, together uh, for what we're offering to corporations and to individuals uh, who are uh, aligned with our mission and our mission, yes, about our mission. The mission is, is simply, and we have a mission, I don't know the mission statement by heart necessarily, but the mission very simply is to elevate African-Americans into uh, C-suite roles within uh, corporate America and uh, to elevate uh, entrepreneurs uh, and black businesses. Um, it is outside of that simple mission statement for me, we are making a very conscious effort uh, to get black business leaders into positions where they have control of uh, some mechanisms of, of capital. Uh, cap capital in a, in a capitalist economy is necessary. Mm -hmm. uh, and far too often uh, our black executives uh, don't sit in, the, in those positions where they're managing uh, profit and loss uh, and uh, black entrepreneurs don't have access to the capital that they need in order to, to run sustainable businesses. I love that. I love that you all are, it's like everyone can put a little statement on their website that I support black lives. You know, we support black lives. And I noticed even like my CSA in my neighborhood, which is, I love them. They had that. And then their newsletter every week, it's still in there, but it gets further and further down. And it has <laughs> because it's like right below the like, you know, vegetables for purchase this week and buy the goat cheese from this farm. And it's like, and PS, we still support black lives. And it's so easy to, well, <laughs> that's yeah. the whole thing is for white people, it's so ridiculously hard to say these things, um, to even put that thing of support up until George Floyd came. And then it's like the cool thing to do. And then, and then, but then what do you do with that? And how do you, um, how do you step up? How do you, 
follow through and actually make real changes that make you uncomfortable and that let go of you meaning white people. So make us uncomfortable, make us let, let go of some of our power and privilege when it hurts the most, recognizing that that's exactly what needs to be done. What have you all come against, come up against since you've, because I'm sure a lot of people are like, yeah, let's do this. And then they're like, oh, we have to spend money on this. <laughs> what has what it been like um, for you all as you're getting things going? It's, it's interesting because um, I, I agree with that perspective that, you know, uh, and we, we knew that, uh, you know, I think strategically we knew going in, you got a fire that's lit right now with George Floyd. How do you keep the fire burning is mm -hmm. really the question. Um, it's weird. Uh, there are several worlds in the executive and in the, in the corporate space that all existed at the same time. You have the organizations themselves that have to do and say what's best for sustainability for, for their revenue, right? For, for the customer base and for the people they serve, they have to do and say the right things for fear of losing market share. Then you have the leaders in those organizations um, who I think some of those leaders have started to emerge. Some of those well-intentioned folks who know that the stuff that's going on is wrong, those people have started to emerge in some of the largest corporations uh, in, in America, in the world. And so you got that. But then you have, and this is a dynamic that the urn founders understand really well and we bumped into then you have the would-be african-american executive constituency um who, who stand to benefit from the type of advocacy that that we have initiated um who are uh almost i mean you can't say this about everybody but the, the type of people we're talking about they are uh high potential people uh overachievers overeducated, right? These are rock star type people, but they exist in a world where they probably don't have a, a mentor of color within their organization or maybe no mentor at all. Um, they, uh, they have limited access to uh, the executives that, that run the company or limited relationships with those folks. Um, they, even their colleagues and the people around them and the people who report to them, there are very few people to support them and support their vision and the things that they say and do. Uh, and so it becomes a, a significant risk for them to align with what Earn has put in motion because what Earn has put in motion is point blank, we're telling you that you should do something and here are the seven or eight things that we recommend that you do uh, as the beginning of best practices. You need to hire a, a African American C-suite executive today. That you, if you don't have one, you need to do it immediately, right? Um, that's not comfortable for anybody. Like, who are you, Martin Shepard, to tell me that I need to hire a, a, a black C-suite executive? Um, Frederick Douglass said, uh, "Power concedes nothing without demand. Never has, and it never will." Mm. It's always been the case. If Earn doesn't come along and demand things, things will never change oh, in, in organizations uh, like Earn. And so of, of those three groups, um, I think we found the most difficulty in our, in our constituent, our colleagues, uh, and, and 
convincing them that what we're doing is is not going away, that we're going to be here and we're going to put a sustained effort in front of people and we're going to make a difference and that there's not going to be a risk to you as a professional uh, or your role within your organization. We can't promise that. We don't know. Um, I can tell you this, the, the, if I take off the businessman hat and put on the lawyer hat um, and I take myself back into the corporate sphere and I say, yes, I align with Earn. And I tell my CEO, I align with Earn. And I think you guys should do some of this stuff. That done. And my CEO gets rid of me because I've said that, that my CEO and the organization have a problem for firing somebody who's in a protected class. Like, but that's, you know, that that's not, that's not the easiest message to deliver uh, to people uh, uh, or for them to understand and accept. People just wanna go and do a good job in their role and then be elevated based upon their merits. And I, I get that. Um, so I think our strategy is really not, it's aimed to benefit that group of people, but we understand the, the limitations there. Some of what we want to do is take the burden off of that group of people because very frequently those organizations say, hey, where is our high potential black person or two around here? We've got a problem with race right now. Let's give them the problem and have them figure it out. We've, I've been in that situation before. Everybody who's a, a, a black executive has been in that position before where you get pulled into a committee uh, to run or you get pulled into a ERG to run. Um, that can be time consuming in and of itself. It never adequately compensates you for the time, effort and energy it takes to be successful at those things. We're saying, hey, let Earn step in and be part of that solution set uh, and, and take some of that off of, of the individuals uh, who might be burdened with that. The other thing that we're saying, you hit on earlier is, if you are a corporation who has said, we're gonna give $100 million or a trillion dollars or I'm being facetious. We're going to give a bunch of money to social justice causes. Um, we're saying, hey, that's great. Let's hold you accountable for the things that you say you're going to do. Yeah. Uh, and be a, a removed third party that helps you keep track of that on, on one hand, but then also hold you accountable for doing the things that you, you said you're going to do in your corporate CSR or, or uh, wherever you made that, uh, that commitment. I think it's, I'm just, I have all sorts of thoughts and all sorts of questions, but um, I have a lot of empathy for the, the black colleagues who are not wanting to rock the boat. Um, I've been in, in multiracial um, groups where we start talking about safe spaces, you know, and white people want to be made feel, you know, like we think safe space is a good thing, but for black people, that's like, I, okay. That's a blanket statement that I shouldn't have made. For a lot of the black people I've encountered in this spaces, it's like, ah, safe for you is different than safe for me. And I've, I've heard some people say, I only feel safe when I'm with other black people. Um, and even when I have people come on the podcast, you know, I usually try to reassure people and you and I know each other, so I didn't say this already, but like, you don't have to, you can say whatever you want. You don't have to censor yourself. You're not gonna offend me. If you do, that's good because then I can like, model behavior, hopefully, of a, of a white person who's taken aback by something about race and most likely wrong and, and how to process it. But I actually can't tell a black person that they're safe, even on this, even on this, because it's going out into the world. 
it's being published. And even though I don't have a, you know, a 7 million person following, I had a, a, one of my interviewees who doesn't do racial work professionally. She said, I, can you just not publish that? Because I'm afraid that my future employer is going to hear this. And she's a very outspoken, incredible woman, but she just was like, eh, that was too much. I didn't want to put myself out there that way. And so I can say you're safe, right. but I can't, you know, yeah, and, and for me to presume that I know what that means or looks like is very fraught. Yeah, I mean, so, some of it is is agency, right? Like some of it, you have to establish and take. You just have to. I mean, you don't have to, right? But if you don't, what are the consequences for not establishing that agency in this world, in this life? Um, yeah. I, I, I am, when I get to the point, I, I have good friends and advisors and people around me most notably Ingrid Elizabeth Shepard, I love you, um, who will tell me when, when I'm off the rails and I'm not thinking the right thoughts. Um, but you know, in this effort, we're, we're talking about a problem that most everyone agrees on. I think even the people uh, who, who might not agree that something needs to be done, they can agree that something very wrong has been done uh, to the African in America. Everybody can agree on that. I'm just saying that something should be done about it. And guess what? I have an opinion on what should be done about it. And here it is. Feel free to differ with that opinion, right? Um, but if you do, uh, number one, at, at this stage of the game, I'm probably going to push you to the end of the line and work with people who can see a, a pretty similar vision mm. uh, to the things that we're putting forward. We're not, we're not asking for things that are unreasonable, unjustified, or... Right. or Ridiculous. I don't think anybody should be put into a position uh, at a large corporation that's not qualified. That would be silly. I'm talking about putting people into roles uh, that, that they are qualified to do and will be successful at and making sure that those people are supported in, in those roles. Um, that's that's the, the journey uh, that, that we're really uh, on here is righting some of these wrongs with the agency that we are taking. This is, this is a strange, weird outcropping of this last four years of politics, is that you got to see a sociopath. Is that, is that right? You know. I think and there's many words. How, how, however, sociopath, yeah, racist. Right. However you describe that, you got to see it openly on TV every day, right? This is someone who doesn't just take agency, but who bends the entire arc of the universe to their will. Like the way that they see or understand things is the exclusive way that is. It's, I, it's my understanding or no understanding. You still feel that happening right now because we don't have a, a conceding, uh, you know, he hasn't, he hasn't you know, issued a, a concession uh, to the new president-elect, um, but I think the 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 outcropping of that is an understanding that hey, uh, I might not be crazy, uh, I might not want people to believe my lies, but what's wrong with me just being able to speak my truth? Yeah, you know what's wrong with that level of agency, particularly in the wake of some <coughs> your uh, point, uh, in the wake of some of the very prominent. Um, uh, uh, dangers that that have become, uh, you know, th that have been displayed to the American people 
uh, uh, what it's like to live a day-to-day -day existence in uh, black or brown skin. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's uh, it's a dangerous dangerous game out there um, for us. Um, and I think it, one of the ways, again, back to earn, but you know, one of the ways you start to reshape that world uh, is uh, you give individuals opportunity. Those individuals. Uh, create a different space for their family. They provide a different opportunity for the people, their network around them. Uh, and that thing starts to grow and you, you change uh, some of this, at least you change top down just by providing uh, economic access to, to economic uh, uh, opportunity. You mentioned before um, when, when, when black uh, executives get pulled into the DNI committees and all that, and you mentioned it, 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 it extra energy and time. And, and I think that word energy is so important because it's not just like going through the task of doing the thing, but it, can you talk more about the energy of what it takes to exist and baseline exist, but then also thrive as a person of color in society, in corporate America, in legal America? Because um, I'm, I think it's so important for, for white people to understand the difference in existence, just the baseline energy that it takes to Yeah, 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 I mean, the, the thing, the term that's come up in recent years has been authentic self, in the workplace, authentic self, like bring your authentic self. Mm -hmm. um, I have to be, my authentic self is more than one self. And if it's not more than one self, um, if the, if I'm walking to my car, uh, in the parking lot, uh, and the police officer says, boy, what are you doing? I, I better come up with a, an authentic self that's going to keep me from getting beat down. Right. Mm. Um, uh, if I'm talking to a client, um, I better have an authentic self that can adjust and appeal to, to that person's pers that what that person needs but also give them a perception of me that is not uh, dangerous uh, or, or threatening in, in any way. Uh, that's real. I happen to not be uh, uh, the biggest guy in the world, um, but I, I, I see it in some of my, my friends who are in a, a similar position uh, in their career as me. Uh, oftentimes, if you're big it, it prevents and, and Black, it prevents a whole nother reality that you have to create another self I have a friend whose voice changes. It's 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 literally a protection mechanism. He's 6'4", 6'5", 280 pounds, a big dude. His voice changes when he's in these conversations to a high-pitched voice just to make people feel comfortable enough to, to speak to him as a human being. Um, and so I, I think that, uh, you know, the, the energy it takes uh, to put on those many faces, and then you talk about succeeding uh, in your role or, or uh, within the roles that, uh, that a, a company uh, might give you, uh, the energy that it takes. I mean, it's, it's a sad reality, uh, but you, you, at this point in the game, uh, you've got to put it all on the line to be successful at not just your job. You've got to be a successful networker with people who might not understand you or have any you know, like interaction with people who are like you, which means you have to try to be a little bit more like them. That is exhausting. That is exhausting. That is not something that I, I know. 
that is not something that similarly situated white executives uh, or people in the workplace ever think about. They don't think about how I have to, you know, uh, minimize myself, mm -hmm. be heard or accepted. Um, I do think that I think that women uh, have a similar experience. I think white women have a similar experience, um, but it's it's it is an exhausting reality uh, when you have to be more than just who you are. You have to you have to to be a prism, you know, and and uh, you've got to refract the right light at the right time uh, for whoever the audience is looking into the prism. That's it's it's a it's a tough tough uh, role to play. That's such a beautiful. Is it an analogy or a metaphor? The prism thing. <laughs> is that the okay. first? Is that, is that a new analogy for you? Is that something you've heard before? Because that's just so. No, I pointy. just made that up. I'm a I'm a poet in my spare time. You are. That's awesome. I um, yeah. So I think my partner is in business, and he talks about um, you know, I we have all sorts of conversations about all the stuff that I've been getting getting more and more involved in and, and, you know, there'll be people, white men in his job that are mad that the women, which is generally white women getting these diversity jobs, which has been shown to just even further benefit white men for the most part, but that they're getting these jobs because they don't, but they don't meet the qualifications. They're not as qualified. And I'm, we're having conversations of who has said, the terms of what it means to be qualified for that job and what it means to be good at that job, white men. So that's the standard. So it's the white supremacy culture, white male culture that's setting that standard. Um, and so trying to contend with that as a woman, as a, as a, a, a black person, as, as anyone that's not a white man, um, changing the standard, I think, and recognizing that because you having to be your authentic, your, your, your authentic self at work is, is your most white self. I would, am, am I being. So, 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 well, there, there's, some nuance, there's some nuance there, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's value in being the, the one cool black dude that the, oh. that, there's value in that too. Right. So that, <laughs> even that's a balancing act, yeah. um, you know, uh, but yeah, so one of our recommendations, one of Mern's recommendations, uh, in, uh, uh, you've seen our letter, uh, is for uh, third party HR consulting uh, and your hiring practices because, because of that very issue, right? Yeah. What does it mean to be qualified for this? And why does it seem like maybe the things that are mandatory qualifiers are things that are the hardest things for, for black candidates to be able to achieve? Or aspire to when they're they may not be necessary for, for the role, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's I appreciate what you said about the being the cool black guy at work, or you know, it, it it seems as if the proximity to whiteness is what people have to play in order to get ahead. But there are so many nuances to that. So I thank you for you weren't calling me out, but thank you for yeah. yeah giving it more nuance that, that, that it deserves. Well, that's the thing, the, the part of, part of supremacy, white supremacist culture in America has always included a connection to the exotic other, right? To, uh, to whatever the character is in black America, uh, whether it's the, the brute or the sambo or the mammy or whatever, whatever caricature has been created in the, in the minds of 
the supremacist, there's always a connection to it, right? That is how you are able to create whiteness. Is I am not, you know, if you're white, you're not that, right? Uh, I'm, I'm not, you know, a mammy uh, who's uh, overweight and shuffling and, and uh, can't read or, or uh, um, a Sambo who's just uh, lazy and drinking. I'm not that. That's who they are. That's not me. Uh, but, you know, I pass the Sambo on the street. The mammy takes care of, of my kids. Uh, the brute is who I tell my daughter to stay away from, right? I have, I've created uh, enough distance but have enough understanding of who they are. I don't know who the cool black guy is in uh, in the uh, stereotype, the 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 uh, panoply of black stereotypes, but there is something there. Uh, I know I've experienced it. I'm sure others can relate to it. Uh, just just being the token. There it is. You know, yeah. Black relationship. Will Smith. Will Smith, right? Like, I mean, he's not a stereotype. He's a human, but like, <laughs> like I could feel good about him. I could feel good about Obama. He plays basketball. You know, like. So it's real. It's real for sure. Yeah, that's um, gosh. Well, I could keep asking you questions, but we're at the end of our hour. Yeah, I, I hate to do it. And I've got a hard stop here, too. Um, um, this is fantastic. So, we should do this again soon. Well, I think we are doing this tomorrow. We're going to have the whole earn team on tomorrow. So for anyone listening who wants to learn more and, and hear this incredible power trio uh, of change uh, makers, uh, tune in. It'll probably be the week after this one. Um, and, um, hopefully by the time this actually is published in a couple weeks, we will have a concession or we will not be in the middle of the civil war. So we'll see what happens. Um, but George Shepard, thank you so much again for, for joining me and for sharing your, your insight and knowledge and, and teaching us all and, um, have a wonderful evening. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Joe. It was a pleasure.